Glad y'all are here this morning. Appreciate you being with us. And we're going to continue our series called Blinded Mind. If you've been here, great. If you haven't, that's okay too. And uh, there are things in life where we certainly, our minds are blinded to. I'm going to start off with something. And when you hear this, you're going to kind of be like, what is the topic today? Well, you're going to find out. So pastor and author Paul David Tripp uses this scenario to describe what's going on every time someone chooses to sin. But specifically, he's going to be talking about when a man chooses to lust. So listen to this. He says, a man is walking home from work and lusting after the woman approaching him on the sidewalk. He slows down his walk to get a longer look and he turns around and watches as she passes. Think with me again about the godlike posture of this man. First, he is treating this moment as if it belongs to him. It's as if he is sovereign and she is on the sidewalk according to his will and for his pleasure. He's the self-appointed deity of the moment. The world has shrunk to the size of his desire and he rules it for his pleasure. He will have what he will have even if it is the only even if it is only the right to stare at body parts and imagine having them for his own pleasure. But there's more. For that moment he is stealing God's creation and taking it as his own. He has no right to this woman. She does not actually belong to him in any way, but he takes her with his mind and his eyes. He's ripped this woman out of the hands of God and claimed her as his own for whatever momentary pleasure he can achieve. He has denied God's existence. He has set himself up as God. Now, some of y'all are going, what What kind of way is that to start a sermon? I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of heavy there. So when you think of that, you go, man, that guy's being a little dramatic. I mean, I've looked at a woman or a guy, and this can go both ways here, but going to all that, all that, isn't he being a little overly dramatic on that? I would never think that way. Or is he simply pointing out a truth that I would really rather not think about when it comes to my sin? His scenario certainly points out to someone who has a blinded mind. Yeah, yeah, that's right, Craig. The guy he's talking about has a blinded mind, but I've never gotten to that point in my life. But when we desire something very, very strongly, our minds can become blinded to the danger and to the consequences that can result from acting on that desire. Even if we believe in God, even if we're a follower of Jesus... And we know what his word says and we clearly know what his word says about sin. We want what we want, don't we? And it can become a very powerful desire. We can ignore the truth or we can explain it away or we can choose not to glorify God in our actions or our behavior. Which points us back to the text that I've been reading every week. And I'm going to read it again this week from Paul's letter to the Romans as he talks about this In chapter 1, he says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And again, you may think, man, this is kind of a, a subject. But we're going to look at an Old Testament story that reminds us of how a blinded mind can make disastrous choices that can have very fatal consequences in our lives. 
Last week we looked at the story, and if you were here, that's great. If you weren't here, that's okay too. But we uh, looked at the story of the newly crowned King David in the Old Testament. And David made a decision to bring the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem because they had just taken over Jerusalem and he's the king now and God is blessing them. And they want to celebrate this by bringing the Ark of the Covenant. And it had been taken about 40 years previously by the Philistines in war. But when they had it in their presence, bad things were happening. So they said, get it out of here. And so uh, Israel... It went back to Israel, but it went to this man named Abinadab, Abinadab's house for some 40 years. And then David said, we need to bring it back. We haven't been having that in our presence, and we need to. So as they're bringing it back, it was on a cart pulled by some oxen. And as they went over a bump or something, they stumbled. And this guy named Uzzah reached down to stable uh, the Ark of the Covenant, which you think, of course, you don't want that to fall. But when he touched it, he was struck down dead. And it kind of put a damper on the celebration for the day, as you can imagine. And as we read last week, David was angry with God, and David was scared of God that day. Why did you do that, God? He was just trying to help. But after the three months of after this happened, they realized we weren't really honoring and worshiping God. It was really more about us. We weren't following what God clearly laid out, for, laid out for how that ark was supposed to be transported. Only by the Levites with the poles on their shoulders. That's what Moses said. We never even looked at that. And so somehow in that three months, they learned a very valuable lesson about God and about themselves. So once they realized their failure to, failure to glorify God... They went a second time and attempted to bring that ark. And this time it was successful as they followed God's instructions to Moses. Well, over the next 10 years as we go through 2 Samuel, David, as the king, has continued to be blessed by God as he expands um, Israel's territory and rule. And we read in 2 Samuel in chapter 10 how David and Israel fought against the Arameans. And it says, David killed 700 of their charioteers and 40,000 of their foot soldiers. Man, they need to make a movie about that. Now, I don't know if that meant David actually killed 700 of those men himself and 40,000 of those soldiers himself, or he was saying David and the army did. But either way, if you're having that kind of success with those kind of numbers, you could begin to become a little confident, couldn't you? Maybe even more than a little confident, maybe overconfident, and maybe even a little more than overconfident, you could become maybe self-absorbed. So we want to look at our text today because it seems like that's kind of where David was in his life. And we're going to read 2 Samuel chapter 11 and listen to what happens as the writer writes. It says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and, she, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying... I'm pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. 
And Joab sent him to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master servants and did not go down to his house. David was told, Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? And Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped out in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, put Uriah out on the front where the fighting is the fiercest. Then withdraw, with him, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men of David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up. And he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us, and they came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. Now, I don't know how many of y'all have heard this story. It's kind of a one that's pretty popular in the Bible. But I always say every week, if nobody's ever heard something that we're talking about, I think that's great. Somebody's hearing something for the very first time. But this is a disturbing story, isn't it? As I've said in previous weeks, this is a story I would leave out. David is the king. He is a man after God's own heart. He is the one we remember as this little shepherd boy who was the only one who would go up against Goliath. I don't want to hear this about him, but God doesn't hide it, does he? God doesn't hide any of this. It's in there, and you can see what David did. And David was human just like we are. He struggled with sin. We all struggle with sin. Thousands of years later, guess what? We're still struggling with sin. Even sexual sins, we're still struggling with it in our culture. And David had amazing military success. But instead of being with his army and in the field where he was supposed to be, where was David? Did you hear that? He was in his palace in Jerusalem. And even the ark wasn't with him. It was out in the field with the army. But David wasn't where he was supposed to be for whatever reason. So he's bored. So he gets up and he walks around on his roof and he sees this beautiful woman bathing from his rooftop. 
And he starts a string of blinded mind decisions that lead to a lifetime of fatal consequences. Now, you may have heard over the years that this was an affair. This was an adulterous affair. We don't know exactly that this, you know, was she consenting? I don't know. Did she know that David was watching her bathe? I mean, did she know when she went out there to take a bath? I don't know if they had, you know, bathrooms and showers like we do, but probably not. She's out at a place where she's bathing. Did she know that David could see? She knew where the palace was, and did she know that she could be spotted? But it was in the evening. Maybe she thought everybody had gone to bed, and she didn't know that she had somebody watching her, groping and looking at her. So we don't know. The text doesn't say. But he does inquire about who this bathing beauty was. She was beautiful to him. And so the man tells him it is Bathsheba. And then he says it's daughter of Eliam. And what the text doesn't tell us, but what we know from connecting the dots from Scripture, is that Eliam, whose daughter this is, is one of David's personal bodyguards, one of his mighty men. And then he tells him, and it's also granddaughter. And again, we're connecting the dots. The text doesn't say this. But it's granddaughter of Ahithophel, who was David's personal counselor. So it's his granddaughter. And then he says, and it's wife of Uriah, who is also one of your personal bodyguards, one of your personal mighty men. Is that clear enough for you, David? She's very close to some people who protect you and honor you all the time. But it doesn't seem with that information about who she is and who she's connected with to phase David at all. He is blinded. And he's in this blinded mind mode, and he ignores all of that. And he says, bring her to me. So he pursues her. He was blinded by desire, by lust. And David rationalizes. They're all out of town. They're not going to know. Dad's not in town. Husband's not in town. Grandfather's not in town. They're not going to know. Just go get her and bring her to me. Can you imagine the guys that know this stuff and they're doing this? So David sent for her. Did she have a choice? Maybe she was worried. I don't know how they went to her. I don't know if they just grabbed her and said, you're coming with us. Or, hey, the king wants to speak with you, which might make her go, oh, no. My husband's out in the war. My grandfather, my, my father's all out in the war. Maybe somebody's died. Maybe it was one of those we regret to inform you kind of conversations. So she, she hurried to the palace. Maybe that's why David sent for me. But she was taken to the palace, and she soon found out what David really wanted. And David slept with her. Now, some commentators believe that she was forced to sleep with David because he had all the power. He was in control. No doubt, certainly David had all of the control of the situation. The account that we read does not say it was rape. And biblical texts do not shy away, away from telling us when it was specific rape. We read that in lots of other passages. In chapter 13, just a few chapters down of 2 Samuel, clearly details that David's son Amnon rapes his half-sister Tamar. They put all the details of that in there. So why would they leave it out if he did rape her? Why wasn't it specifically mentioned? Well, it's because it's David and he was the king and we were trying to make him look good. This doesn't make him look good, does it? I mean, he's committed adultery. He's committed murder. He was coveting another man's wife. He's breaking at least three or four of the Ten Commandments so there's not to make him look. I don't know the answer to that, y'all. The answer is we don't know for sure. But David was clearly the one who was responsible for setting all of this in motion. Bathsheba was obviously under pressure to comply with the king's wishes. So you can see how someone would see this could possibly be rape. At verse 4 details that she was not pregnant before she was with David. 
they mention that thing and you're like, oh, that's in the Bible about her monthly stuff. Whoa, this is weird in church. Okay, but the writer says, we want you to know that it was not her husband. It was definitely David that got her pregnant. And you know, David already had a wife. What was he doing? Oh, wait a minute. David had seven wives. We're going to go to this chart just for a minute. He said, how do you know? Did y'all know that David had seven wives? But you connect the dots in the Bible and it tells us. So the first one was Michael. If you remember, the king before David was Saul. And Saul had this contest of who could ever bring him... um, Kind of like scalps, I'll just say that, okay? And uh, he brought 400 scalps to King uh, Saul, and he gave him his daughter. But actually, King Saul switched daughters with him. But anyway, that didn't work out too well with Michael. And then there's a great story about how he met Abigail. But look at that. He's down to, this is number eight. This is number eight of his wives. And again, David has gone outside of God's design for marriage for what he wanted. And the result was still this desire that he was still not satisfied. Even after the eighth wife. What does that say about David? David's looking to have his needs met outside of God and outside of God's design. Let me just say this for our culture. And a lot of people will disagree with me and I'm okay with that. But God's design, because God is the creator of us as humans. He's the creator of this wonderful thing called marriage. Is for one man, one woman forever. That's God's design. That's what God designed. You don't have to like that. You don't have to agree with it. But that's God's design. And there is forgiveness and there is grace that we see throughout Scripture. Even with David. And we'll get to that in a little bit. But that is still God's design. And the king, who's a man after God's own heart, is still trying to find something outside of God's design. And it's not satisfying him, is it? That's why he's on number eight. So trying to get our needs met outside of God and His design for us, we blind our minds by the desire of something outside of God. And another real tragedy of this story, if you didn't already see, is the unbelievable righteousness, character, loyalty, and integrity of Uriah, who is killed. He's murdered by David's plan. He was a Hittite. He wasn't even born as an Israelite, but he has converted to Judaism because he believes in the one true God, and he wants to serve the nation of the one true God, and he was loyal to David. He was loyal to Israel, and yet he's killed. Even when David tried to get him to go home and sleep with his wife so it would look like, oh, actually, wow, that kid sure looks like King David, but wow, that's your son? He tried to fix that and it wouldn't work because this guy is so righteous. Did y'all see he even got him drunk? Even when he was drunk, this guy still has integrity. David's got, what do I got to do? And it's crazy. And then David realized this isn't going to work. He's not going to go sleep with his wife. So he gives him the orders, his own death sentence to him. And this guy has so much integrity, he doesn't sneak a peek. I wonder what this is. He doesn't even look. He takes it to Joab, and Joab puts him on the front lines, and he gets killed. And you're like, what in the world, David? And this seems, this bugs me. Does this bug you? God, this is a righteous guy with integrity. Why didn't you intervene and stop this? I don't know, y'all. Or maybe I do. Or maybe we get a glimpse. All of this would set up the birth of Jesus. Do y'all realize this? All these crazy things that people go outside of God's plan. God's still plan came along all the time to bring about Jesus, who would intervene in history to save not just Uriah, but all of humanity from their sins. And that's what we really needed, is saving from our sins. And David would be confronted 
by the prophet Nathan in chapter 12. And I'm going to read that. So the Lord sent Nathan to David. And this is probably after the baby's been born. And David's kind of, how many people really know what happened here? Or some people are going, David is so awesome. Did you hear about that poor widow? She lost her husband and David took him into her home as his new wife. He's going to take care of her and that baby. Isn't David wonderful? But David knows that's not the truth. And even David is thinking maybe he's kind of gotten away with some of this. But Nathan comes to him, a prophet, and he says, When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. And the rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle. But the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had brought. He raised it and he grew up with him and his children and he shared his food, drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who would come to him. Instead, he took the little ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who would come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, this man who did this must die. He must pay for the lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then David, then Nathan said to David, You are that man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah, and if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Man, Nathan does not hold back, does he? And I bet he's scared because he's like, man, David has the right to kill me right now because I have called him out the whole details. There's no getting away with any of this with what David's done. God knows everything. And notice the outrage, y'all, of David. Man, I see myself in that. When we hear about something else somebody else has done, we're like, yeah, man, that is awful. That God will have to pay for that. Justice needs to be served. But then somebody goes, that's you. Then it's different, isn't it? Well, but my situation was different. And so David realizes when Nathan says, you are the man I'm talking about in the story. And the good news of the Bible, the good news of the gospel is that David would admit his guilt and repent. I want you to write down somewhere, if you've got something to write with or put it in your phone, Psalm 51. Go back and read that. David, David wrote Psalm 51 to talk about his sin in this particular case with Bathsheba. So go back and read 51. I don't care if you do it now. If I see your head down, I'm going to assume you're reading Psalm 51. Not checking the starting lineup for the Falcons. All right. (laughs) David would admit his guilt. But here's where I want y'all to see some. Some of y'all today might be going, you know what? I wouldn't. This is is a a story that's in the Bible, Craig. And I get it. But I would never do something like David. I would never cheat on my spouse or or anything like that. Or go to the depths to kill my, uh, her husband or, or, you know, his wife to get whatever. I would never do that. And, And I understand that. But what I want us to understand here is is that maybe the person in the story is not David that maybe we connect with. But maybe it's Nathan, somebody that's willing to go in love and confront someone with their sin. And that's hard, isn't it? 
But Nathan did that. I wonder if Nathan could have been on the roof with David that night. And he sees David over to the side. He goes, oh my goodness, you got to come see this, Nathan. And Nathan comes and goes, oh, whoa, whoa, David. You shouldn't be looking at that. Yeah, she's beautiful, but you shouldn't be looking at that. And what if in that process, he says, let me tell you something, David. This is what's going to happen if you follow through with bringing her to the palace and sleeping with her. Number one, she's going to get pregnant. Number two, you will have to kill her husband to cover it up. And then you're going to lose that precious baby because of it. And then your son Amnon is going to think, well, my dad can do whatever he wants because he's the king and he can get away with it. So, so can I. So we read literally in the Bible a few chapters over that Amnon will rape his, his half-sister, and he does that. That's what's going to happen, David, if you do this. And then your other son, Absalom, is so mad about this that he ultimately is going to kill his brother. He waits, but he gets him in the end, and he kills his brother. And then Absalom, because, David, again, you don't really handle your family stuff well, Absalom is going to run off, and eventually he's going to come and take over your throne for a while, and he's going to disrespect you publicly by sleeping with your concubines so everybody can see what's going on and disgrace the family name. So all that's going to happen. And Joe, your commander, Joab, is eventually going to have to kill your own son, Absalom, to get him to stop because you won't do anything about it, David. That's what's going to happen if you pursue Bathsheba. Now, do you think you still want to go now? Why don't you go take a cold shower, strap your sword on, and get out there with the boys like you're supposed to be? But unfortunately, David didn't have Nathan with him that night, did he? Man, wouldn't it be great to have a friend like that that would be with us when we started making stupid blind mind decisions? And say, Greg, what are you doing, man? Y'all, that's what the church is supposed to be. True people in community as Christians, that's what you do. You go, whoa, hey, what are you thinking? What are you planning? That's not right. But we're afraid to tell people that. Oh, well, that's not really what Paul meant. That's not really what God meant. No, God really meant those things in the Bible. But we can be helped by something called the Holy Spirit. And Paul said to the Galatian church, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Y'all, God gave us desires of the flesh. That's not wrong to have desires of the flesh. That's a God-given thing. But it's within the framework of how God designed it to be to use those desires, right? Not just with anybody and everybody and however we want to do it. So he says, so I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are, so that you are not to do whatever you want. There's a, there's a tension there. You don't just do whatever you want, but our culture says, just do whatever you want. If it feels good, if you feel like it that day that it's the right thing to do and you love that person for the moment, then it's okay just to do whatever you want. And Paul is saying, no, that's not true. The spirit and the, the de desires of the flesh are in conflict, so you don't do just whatever you want. So God has promised us this wonderful gift called the Holy Spirit. I don't know if y'all know who Terry Crews is. Kind of big muscular dies is the, uh, did the Old Spice commercials, and I think he's on some TV shows and stuff. Some of y'all know him or smiling. But listen to this. He got very specific in an interview. He says, he was messed up with pornography, and he says, some people say, hey, man, you can't really be addicted to pornography, but I'm going to tell you something. If day turns into night and you're still watching, you probably 
have got a problem. It changes the way you think about people. People become objects. People become body parts. They become things to be used rather than people to be loved. Every time I watched it, I was walled off. It was like another brick that came between me and my wife. The truth is, everything you need for intimacy is in your spouse. But man, he was believing the lie for a while, wasn't he? I can get something that I need outside of God's design. And it ended in disaster for him. He sees what, he sees what it did to his marriage. So what's the solution to this God-like delusion of lust that that first illustration that I used talked about? Well, recognition of and living for the community with God for which I was created keeps my sexual life pure. And I know there's young people in here today, and I know it's not cool to keep your sexual life pure. But it's very cool to God because that's the way he designed it. And I want y'all to hear that this morning. There is no other way. Heart controlling love for God protects my heart from wandering to all the places it could wander in this sexually insane world. Would y'all agree with me about that? And man, I'm telling you, you kids, I cannot imagine when I was in high school having to see this stuff on here every day. You know, I remember going through the Dagum Sears catalog in the women's section underwear, and I thought, oh, my word. I can't imagine what you see. Y'all are laughing because it was you, too, back in those days. <laughs> and we're laughing, but it's really not funny, is it, how easy this stuff is available to our sons and to our daughters, and it's not what they need. So we have a responsibility to help with that. You know, and these are awkward conversations. I understand it. I had an awkward conversation the other day with one of my kids about this stuff, and I'm so glad I did because I told both of my sons, I said, you, I'm, I want you to hear this stuff from me and from God's Word because the guys in the locker room lie. They're going to say, oh, well, blah, blah, blah. and then later when you get married, you go, oh, he was lying. There ain't no way. And we laugh, but we do. We, we, we get our information or some guy on TikTok telling you about, oh, yeah, conquest. And, man, that stuff's a lie because we're trying to fill these needs. God gave us those needs, but he wants it again within the framework of how he's given it to us so we can really enjoy it and understand that. Does that make sense? So I know it's kind of an awkward topic, but listen to this. And there's another lesson from David. When we are not where we're supposed to be, Doing what we're supposed to be doing, we can easily be distracted by sin that can consume us and lead us into a string of bad choices and consequences. Is that not true? So we need to think about that. The good news for David was and is, and I hope you hear what I'm saying today, there was grace for David, there was mercy of God. David still had to go through all those bad things that I just said. Those really happened. All his kids killing each other and raping and all that. That happened as a result of this. There were consequences. And he lost that precious baby, him and Bathsheba. But David also learned a very valuable lesson that he thought he was above all that stuff. And we're not. And he needed God's grace. And read Psalm 51. But God has given us everything to have our needs met through him and his design for our lives. We have to believe that. We have to trust that. But we have to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Not the world's kingdom and their idea of whatever goes, whatever you want. That's what we can do. So this morning we're going to offer an invitation as we always do. That If maybe today you need to say, you know what? 
I'm tired of trying to find all my, these needs outside of God. I'm ready to find them from God. And I want to stop looking at them from all these other things in life. And I want to find them in God through Jesus Christ. And that's why he came to die for us, y'all. Because all of our sins have to do with not getting our needs met. We're trying to get them outside of God. But God says, no, they're in me. So we offer an invitation for you to name Jesus as your Lord and Savior today and be baptized into him or join a church. And y'all, I want to be the kind of church that calls each other out when we're doing stupid, destructive things. And you can do that in love, right? We can do that in love, but that's the kind of church we want to be, that we call each other and say, whoa, wait a minute, Craig, what are you doing? That's not, you know that's wrong. And I'm telling you that because I love you and I want you not to have these consequences. Don't we say that to our kids? Well, we should say that to our friends too, to the people we go to church with, right? So this morning, the praise team is going to lead us in in a song here and we're going to focus on getting ready for communion. And if you're here with us today and you're not a member of our church, that's okay. If you're a believer and you'd like to participate in remembering Jesus' death for you, and your sins, we invite you to. If you didn't get a packet, you can sneak out and get one of those. But we're getting ready to focus our hearts on that, what Jesus did for us to give us grace and forgiveness. And you may be here today and you think, man, you just don't know. It don't get much worse than what we just read about. And God forgave David and restored him, and he can do that for you too. So let's remember that as we go into communion. Let's stand and sing. If you have a decision, come forward at this time.